in, everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Lass right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of Kentucky Fried Wrestling. Brian, tell the good folks listening about a couple of new features we have lined up today on the KFR podcast. That's right, Scott. Today we are launching part one of Unsolved Mysteries of Memphis, where we attempt to solve a mystery that has baffled not only fans, but also the wrestlers who were there that night for years. Tonight, with our special guest, Jim Cornette, we attempt to unmask the Mill Moscarus Monday Night Mystery. Ah, uh, I love it. I was there on that night in question back in 1979, and this is a case that has left folks gobsmacked for decades. And Jim will be taking the stand to present his evidence. And it is compelling, I must admit, but it's all to you know, explain this mysterious main event of January 29th, 1979. And I have also uncovered a fact, and I will stop short of calling it a smoking gun, but it does seem to contradict most of the evidence we have heard so far in this case. And uh, today I'll also be calling two surprise witnesses, two men who were also there that night, and they're going to share their recollections of this most controversial main event. Two experts who you would think would know the truth. Well, Scott, we will also be debuting Stinkin' Rednecks. (laughs) On a lighter note. (laughs) On a lighter note, a discussion with longtime fans of the territory, and your first guest will be someone we both know very well, Travis Heckle, the resident artist of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. That's right. I mean, we say Stinkin' Rednecks. We uh, certainly say that as a term of endearment, as that is a longtime insult heels would direct at fans in the territory, some of whom uh, rode tractors to the matches. And I'm not saying that Travis <laughs> necessarily fell, fell into that category. <laughs> but uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I believe I hurled that insult and perhaps one that Dave Brown doesn't particularly care for at Travis and his buddies back in 95 at the Louisville Garden. So it's going to be kind of cool. We're going to be covering all of that today on Kentucky Fried Wrestling and more. It is a packed show, as you can tell. So if we're going to get it all in, we'd better get going. We'll be right back with Unsolved Mysteries of Memphis with our guest, James E. Cornett, right after this message. At Taco Bell, Taco Bell, can you feel your taste buds tingle? Taco Bell, Taco Bell, watch us make you a burrito or a tasty and chorito. Just us and Taco made up fresh at Taco Bell. Put a smile on your face. Taco, Taco, Taco Bell, everybody loves the taste. Taco, Taco, Taco Bell, cause we're the fresh food place. Taco Bell. And we are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And, you know, my first card as a kid at the Mid-South Coliseum is very special to me. I would imagine for folks living in New York, it's like maybe the first time you stepped inside Yankee Stadium. And on that night, in January 29th, 1979, I got to see a main event that has been talked about and debated for years now. Jerry the King Lawler calls on... Jackie Fargo, the legend, brings him out of retirement, has to go to Nashville, sit on the couch, plead with him to come to Memphis on Monday because he's in a stretcher match. And you see, you don't need a great technical wrestler like Jack Briscoe as your partner when you're in a stretcher match. You need a street fighter like Jackie Fargo, especially when you're going up against the universal heartthrob himself, Austin Idol, darling, and the international wrestling superstar, 
Mill Mascaraz. I begged and pleaded to take my, for my uncle to take me to this card because I had been a just a voracious reader of everything I could get my hands on about wrestling. And Mill Mascaraz was all over the aftermags. Bill After, I think, had a serious man crush on the guy. And hey, I admit, he looks spectacular flying across the ring on those magazines. It's almost like he's going to leap off the cover and right into your lap. Now, in person, he wasn't the most, uh, let's say, spectacular performer. He was good. He was graceful, if anything. But uh, at any rate, he impressed me that night, not only for his flying body press, his his aerial maneuvers that I had not seen in, in, in Memphis before, but also for the fact that he did a stretcher job for Lawler and Fargo and sold his ass off, put the local guys over, made them look like world beaters. And then not only that, as they were carrying his mass carcass back to the back, Fargo runs down, tumps the stretcher over, and continues to put the boots <laughs> to Mill Masgras as he's begging off and literally has to crawl back to the dressing room. Now, fast forward to 2009. I've been out of the business for several years at that point. But that memory has always, you know, just continued to burn bright in my heart. And I'm at, uh, I'm at Charlotte at the uh, NWA Legends Fan Fest and, and, and Cornette, Jimmy Cornette is there. Now I have, this is one of my wrestling heroes. And in front of the entire cult of Cornette on hand, I politely introduce myself. I'm shocked to find that he actually knows who I am. And then I ask him his thoughts on this match. And he, in front of everybody, in front of the entire cult of Cornette, embarrasses me and says, Hey, buddy, I got news for you. That wasn't Bill Mascaris under that hood. That was Pepe Lopez. <laughs> well, of course, you know, that kind of uh, stuck in my craw for a little bit. And uh, so I did a little digging. And I had to talk with, uh, with Jerry Jarrett. Actually, during that same trip, I sat down with Jerry Jarrett for two hours, and we talked about a lot of things, but I did bring up the topic of the match, and he explained that he was friends with promoter Salvador Luteroth, who flew he and his wife to Acapulco, and it gave me this incredibly detailed story. <laughs> he remembered what they had for dinner. He remembered the dog's name. He remembered the names of three, all three of his kids, and that he arranged this deal to bring Mascaras in. And the thing is, it happened late on, he got the call on late Thursday night that it was a go. That for some reason, Mill was going to be passing through and could actually do the shot. So they had already sent out the ad for a stretcher match, one-on-one, -on -one, which, which was red hot. You didn't, you, know, you didn't even really need to mess with the formula. Lawler and Idol was a hot feud. And this, you know, this was advertised as a one-on-one -on -one stretcher match. So they immediately scramble, call in Jackie Fargo, because they know that'll pop the house. And it does. It actually, I think, uh, I think the house went up uh, by about uh, five grand from the previous week. So then, Mark James, uh, my, you know, is, is a good friend of mine, mutual friend of, of, with Jim Cornette, publishes a book. Uh, he does some research on, uh, on the Tennessee Athletic Commission. Uh, does a, it's very w well researched. He pours through all these records, and he finds uh, the commission's report for that evening. And there is no Aaron Rodriguez listed. There is, however, Francisco Flores, who was wrestling out the, not the original legendary Francisco Flores, but another Francisco Flores. He even make this more confusing. <laughs> uh, he's on that list. And so I guess, you know, Mark decides that, well, 
It must have been a ringer. That explains everything. That explains why it wasn't advertised. That explains why he did such a convincing job and just sold his ass off. But he has a reputation for being an uncooperative ass everywhere else that he's worked. Why would he do this for Jerry Jarrett? Well, that seemed to clear it up. But I have been a, doing a little more. I'm not going to let this go. In other words, and I, and I know we have we have we have Jim Cornette waiting on the line. I just want to know if do you have anything to say for yourself right now? <laughs> Me, <laughs> I'm loving this so far. You have, you, have, uh, you have tarnished a childhood memory of mine. Oh my God, you're, you're going to need therapy for years, <laughs> years to come about. And look at what's already become of you. I know. Uh, no, you've done a good recap so far. So, you know, what new research have you uncovered? I'm willing to look at this with an open mind before I tear apart your hopes and dreams and, and sup on your tears. Well, t well t t take it easy on me, Jim, please. But I, I do offer me to submit Exhibit A. Uh, please do. But well, now, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you call the little Bowden? Well, you know, I, look, I, as far as the way I'm looking at this, this great Mill Mascaris Monday Night Wrestling mystery is I'm Sherlock Holmes and you're Inspector Clouseau. I'm doing some real digging here. And I pulled out, ironically enough, I used Mark James' own record book. Now, I'm, I'm going to give Mark a little plug here. It's Memphis Wrestling History, Tennessee Record Book, 1973 to 1979 that he did with Tim Dills. It's a great book. I, I reference it often. And yes, I was yes. looking at uh, the date in question, sir. January 29th, 1979. Do we not agree that that is the date that Bill Masker supposedly appeared in Memphis as the partner of Austin Idol? I, I believe that's that's the one that's been under discussion. Brian, would you concur with that? I would concur with that. You you would concur with that. There, yes, we we concur with that. Would you also concur, Mister Cornett, that it would be impossible for a man to appear in two places at once? Uh, yes, it, except if he was working for Nick Goulas, in which case it often happened two and three times a night. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, the only problem with that theory <laughs> about Francisco Flores appearing under a hood as Mil Masker says a ringer, like Jerry Jarrett, whatever. Do sleight of mask. <laughs> You're ready for sleight of hand. Like he would ever do sleight of hand for such an internationally renowned superstar as Mill Masker says. First of all, that's outrageous that you, that you would even insinuate that. But it could not have been Francisco Flores because you see, he was working that night, according to Mark James' very own record book, in Birmingham, Alabama, teaming with your own man Bobby Eaton of the Midnight Express against the Freebirds, Terry Gordy and Michael Hayes. So how could he now, be? How, now how could he what, be? Now, was, was 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 that the news that was that taken from the newspaper ad advertising the match or from results after the match was over with? Now this is from Mark James' book, so it must. No, be I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not asking the, the source, the author. I'm saying was that the newspaper <laughs> ad that was listed as what the matches were supposed to be, or was that the report of afterward of what the matches were indeed? In actuality, well, I don't know because according to yeah, well, well, you don't well, know. No, no, you, well, you, you just don't know. The point is, here, it, it, let me present for you an alternate reality, my son, as you grasp on this hopeless uh, uh, clinging to your childhood fantasy. <laughs> Reason why, when I first saw the newspaper ad, uh, it was just a few weeks after the the incident, the the card had happened. 
And I was dumbstruck because there was no mention of Mel Mascaris on the Louisville program or, or the, he did, certainly didn't make any of the other towns on the, uh, in the territory. And so naturally I, uh, I said, this is odd. And then of course, later on when it came out that, that yes, it was Mil Mascaris did a stretcher job. I was like, okay, that this could not be Mil Mascaris. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's just the, the opinion that I had framed in my mind until you came in that fateful day, my son. <laughs> It started giving me all these details at which then I could confirm for you once and for all. No, you, you have been hornswoggled. You have been, you have been gobsmacked my son because uh, no, there's no way that was Mil Mascaris. And I'll tell you what really happened. What really happened was you see, oh, it was advertised. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Go ahead. It was advertised as a stretcher match. See, even Harley Quinn is coming over here now because she wants to hear me smarten up this mark. It was advertised as a stretcher match <laughs> in the uh, in the newspaper as Jerry Lawler versus Austin Idol because they never smartened the commercial appeal up as to what the real Monday night card would be when they did angles on Saturday morning TV where they would change the card because Correct. the deadline for the ads was on Friday. Correct. So they had Jackie Fargo coming into town. <laughs> And they were able to get Fargo, who's going to jump that house. But they say, wait a minute, who's going to be the uh, the partner for Austin Idol then? We don't have any other big name that we can get on this short notice. Toto. And then somebody, Toto? And then somebody, <laughs> somebody said, wait a minute, why don't we just make it a guy under a mask? Because don't you remember Exhibit A, April 24th, 1977, when the executioners the WWF tag team champions who took on Ron and Robert Fuller turned out to be two guys that were the executioners from Knoxville and not Chuck the monster O'Connor and killer Kowalski. <laughs> uh, but do you not remember, sir, when Mr. Wrestling Tim Woods was indeed Dick Steinborn, a capable competitor, but still not the original article. And basically they said, we'll make it some mass guy. Well, who's the biggest name mass guy? Well, let's make it Mil Moscris because nobody's ever fucking seen him. And the reason why I said Pepe Lopez, because it was anybody of, of, that could pass as an Hispanic, up to and possibly including Eddie Sullivan, if he was around the territory oh, at the time. on. Bill Vasquez, his, his, his physique is so unique. Oh. It, with his stomach <laughs> holding, you know, held in, no. and, his, and that V-shape that he's got. I mean, nobody, that, nobody else looks like that. That's the thing. Any Anybody that could pass for Hispanic <laughs> that had... It had a big chest. The people in Memphis went, oh, it's Bill Moscris, because why would they think any different in those days? So, and I think that then it, it is it is all these years, because you've attached such importance to this otherwise forgotten match, <laughs> that all these years, Scott Bowden, because of your childhood memory, all these years you've tried to validate that, and, and Jerry Jarrett, being the kind and compassionate man that he is, did not want to cause you emotional distress and mental disturbance and turmoil and PTSD and things that would require you, such as I am now imparting to you now, require you to have therapy. But stone cold fact of the matter is he just made that story up to you about flying out to fucking Mexico with fucking Salvador Luteroth and having dinner and made up a story like when he convinced Plowboy Frazier that Jerry Lawler had deceived him about the quality of the diamond rings that he had given him. Jerry Jarrett wove a story that deceived a simple mind like yours and convinced you that your childhood memory was, was true so he wouldn't hurt your feelings because he's that nice but well, i mean wow he, he is a, I don't he, have he, he is a nice kind generous man after all he did give a mark like you your big break in the business 
Uh, I don't have any these <laughs> Scott Bowden stupid people. And there's no that was Mil Mascaris. Well, and we've pretty proven that was not bad. They, he would have had to have flown so, from Mexico, Memphis, under cover of darkness, and worked under an assumed name without a Tennessee Athletic Commission license. Why? Okay, what, and, right, right, right. That's a good point that you bring up. That's a good point that you bring up because a lot of this evidence is centered around the fact that he's not listed on the Tennessee Athletic Commission. Well, you know, you have to pay for that license, and so why do that? If Rodriguez is only going to be in for one night. Oh, good Lord. He's brought Mil Moscaris in from Mexico. He's worried about, a, at the time, the licenses were 5 or $10. Yes. I don't think yes. that's anybody's living. We, and we know how that Jerry Jarrett sometimes cut corners. Oh, good <laughs> Grass- Bras, you're the, you're falling off the cliff, Bowden. But what you you've know, got what, what, what you're doing? Tenuous, you're you talk about a fantasy. You talk about a fa- wait a minute, wait a minute now. You talk about a fantasy world. You're com- you're talking about a, a real life situation here, and then mixing it with a wrestling angle, like Plowboy F- Frazier being deceived. This is this is. Let me introduce you to reality, Jim Cornette. Let me introduce you. This is the equivalent. See, right now you've got me on the ropes. You're pounding away. You're about to put me away. The referee is pushing you back. And I'm taking this moment right now to turn my back and pull the proverbial chain, the gimmick, out of my trunks. Because I would like uh, for you to hear from the man himself. You know, why go to a book and 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 just see something printed? You're right. That means very little what's printed on, on, on paper. Let's go to Jerry Jarrett himself. And uh, I have a little something for you. I'm pulling, I'm pulling the chain out right now. Brian, can you run that clip, please? Well, I am here with the legendary promoter himself, Jerry Jarrett, because frankly, Cornette, you and I could discuss the Mill Mascaris Monday Night Wrestling mystery till the cows come home, and it still wouldn't settle anything. Mark James could write all the books in the world, and it still wouldn't prove anything until you go to the man. And that's why I reached out to Jerry Jarrett. Now, he's already explained a little bit of the story to me. He's a busy man. He doesn't have much time today, but he does have a message for you, Jim. Jerry? Mil Mascaris, the great Mexican superstar, was indeed in Memphis in the night in question, tagged with Austin Idol against Jerry Lawler and Jacob Argo. Uh, I was there, and while my memory is not as good as it used to be, I wouldn't forget Mil Mascaris. And really, Jerry, it's a simple explanation, which, you know, we have talked about with uh, Brian Last, uh, the producer of Kentucky Fried Wrestling, and, uh, and of course, David Bixenspan, uh, the theory that it's certainly possible that uh, Flores, you just use his license. I mean, why get a new license for Aaron Rodriguez if he's only going to be in the territory for one night? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I hate to admit it, but we did do some shortcuts when it proved necessary. No. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, more than likely, with Flores being in for just one night and one match, I did not see the you mean, sense, you, and the wrestlers had to pay for it in those days. You mean, uh, in you, getting, you mean Rodriguez in for one night? Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. I just want to clear that up, because Cornetta, Cornetta probably pick up on that. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Uh, well, I'm sure we had Flores in, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, he was not he, as Mil Mascaris. Yeah, I believe he came in later as the Turk, didn't he? Or the Turk and El Toro. Was, was he part of that tag team? 
You know, I don't recall. I think so. Okay. All right. Well, we, um, that, that's easy enough. That that part's easy enough to figure out. But I tell you what, Jerry, I appreciate you uh, kind of clearing that up a little bit for us. But we'll come back next week and we'll say, we'll, we'll, you know, because you gave me the complete detailed story of how this appearance took place, why it wasn't advertised ahead of time. We talked about all of that earlier when we, you know, kind of off the record. But uh, we'll come back next week. We'll try to get Cornette if we haven't totally embarrassed him, if he's not too much of a coward to come back on this podcast and face the truth and face facts and face life in general, really, then uh, we'll have a good, fun discussion. One thing I don't want to do is Mark James is a great guy. A great friend of mine, too. Taking Mark James's historical data is the equivalent to taking the people that um, said that Hillary Clinton was going to be Trump by 30 points. That's the equivalent. And, you know, Mark wasn't there, and the posters didn't do an accurate count, or the Donald would not be our president. That's right. Um, But that's one thing that Jimmy and I are in common on. We both love the Donald. (laughs) <laughs> well, and uh, yeah, well, uh, I don't know about that, but I will say that, uh, you know, that, that's the thing with like Mark, Mark James and I have talked about this before and we're, and we're, and we're, we're buddies. I wrote the forward for his, for his first book as part of the fun of being, I don't know, a, 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 so, you know, we like to think of ourselves as wrestling historians, uh, but we are, we're just big marks at heart, really. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm a Mark who just happened to get into the business. And I think Cornette <laughs> probably feels the same way, but uh, you know, it, it's, you know, writing about wrestling is so difficult because it was so, everything was so closely guarded back in those days. Uh, it was like trying to do a, a story on the mafia or something. And so you're constantly unraveling this mystery. So I, I, you know, Mark and I've been kind of like trading uh, jokes back and forth about the whole thing, but now he'll, he'll take this in stride, I'm sure. But uh, maybe, and maybe we'll even have him come on next week. Uh, we'll do a little uh, Memphis round table. Okay. Look forward to it. All right, Jerry. Thank you. Well, what do you have to say for yourself? Are you still there, Cornette? <laughs> or wait, or who's it was? Brian said he was stopping the tape. Are we on goddamn? <laughs> Wait a minute. This is the first. I'm glad I'm recording because this is the first. Jim Cornette is at a loss for words, ladies and gentlemen. But no, I, I didn't want to not use my words when Brian said I'm stopping the tape. I didn't want to use my fucking words. Uh, are we recording now? <laughs> yes, use your words. <laughs> why, well, why don't you just ask me again what I think of whatever the fuck it was I just... <laughs> I, 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 yeah, go ahead. Well, the way you, the, the way you broke it down, and you were you were a photographer uh, back then. Uh, I'm assuming that you were backstage at the Mid South Coliseum on January 29, 1979. Since you know exactly how this all came about. No, 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 no. I wasn't. Oh, I just, oh. I, I just, I just actually know what would happen in an alternate universe, not one where Jerry Jarrett is a saint. He is so compassionate. He is such a kind human being that he knows what irreparable emotional damage beyond repair. You would be driven off the edge into a, into a rubber room at the puzzle factory, uh, literally off your rocker by the knowledge that your most treasured childhood dream was all a lie. And he stands by this, despite the fact that we all know that there's no way that Jerry Jarrett, even as a businessman, <laughs> Spent the money that it would take to get Mel Mosker to Memphis. 
even on the airplane, even if he worked for free, which he never did in his history, but he certainly didn't pay to go work for people. Uh, it, it, they got Fargo and they wanted to false book, which they did probably 10 times a year, a card in the paper so that the people would see it so they could change the match on TV on Saturday morning and it would be look real. They did that about 10 times a year, and I loved it when they did that. But it did lead to sometimes confusing newspaper ads. Uh, they knew they were going to get Fargo, who would jump the house. As I said, somebody said, hey, let's give him a partner under a mask, a big star. Somebody with a big chest uh, 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 filled the part out. Mil Moskris didn't do a stretcher job for anybody in his life. Uh, afterwards, okay. uh, now, Jerry now, Jarrett, Jerry, now, afterwards, Jerry Jarrett has probably forgotten about this part of history until you reminded him and, and reminded him of how great it was. Whereupon then he didn't want to, he didn't want to ruin your life, son. But the fact of the matter is the, the athletic commission report was basically the reporter's statement to the athletic commission, which is a division of the Tennessee state government, which means that it is Jerry Jarrett's affidavit to the state of Tennessee that Francisco Flores worked that event. So I take none other than Jerry Jarrett's written statement also to heart when I tell you this and pop your bubble, son, because it didn't happen. And, uh, and, and, and also, and, and has anybody proven where did Mill Moscris? He wasn't even anywhere in the Tennessee or in the Southeast area. No, no, no. During those, we, he was wrestling in Texas right. and but in he, Mexico. But he, with right, the right, right. And we have researched that, Jim. See, you're, you're just spouting but all this information. Like, you're cutting you're kind of a promo. Hang on a second. You're cutting a promo like, like you normally do. Moon. And the man in the moon that's made out of green cheese was on the flight next to him sitting and they were having a chat with Amelia Earhart. <laughs> he told me uh, he told me all about the flight to to, uh, to Acapulco with his wife and the place, they, uh, the mansion that they stay at Salvador Luteros overlooking Acapulco Bay. He remembered the <laughs> he re he remembered the name of the driver who picked him up from the airport. See, I come, I come, I come up. That still doesn't put Mil Moscaris in, in fucking Memphis. It's Coliseum on Monday night, January, whatever the fuck. January 29th, 1979, sir. Thank you. Do you even know what date we're talking about, sir? Oh, good Lord. I have no idea why I'm talking on this program right now. You, you're delusional. I said, Brian, try to talk some sense into him. Brian, I've given up after week one. Brian, oh. can you explain? You did a little research on your own. Uh, Bill Maskers, you're right. He was working Texas quite a bit. Did we find any results at all on that Monday night? We do not have anything from that specific night, but he was actively working in Houston, Texas for Paul Bosch. Who never, who never ran on, on Monday night. But uh, do we have the complete list of all... Lucha Libre events that occurred in the country of Mexico for that that particular day. Is there some book we can study that and, and see that? There is not a single day that we have the complete results of what happened in Mexico. Well, the, but, but, but Mil Masters wrestled in Mexico for 40 years and never wrestled in Memphis, Tennessee once in his fucking life. So well, where do you likely, more likely would Mil Masters have been? Well, we know well, Mexico we, or Memphis, Tennessee. We do know where Francisco Flores was. He was uh, at Boutwell Auditorium. In Birmingham that night, teaming with uh, Bobby. So, 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 so we, we, so we might suspect. And once again, I'm not even sold on the idea that it had to be Francisco Flores. Oh, wait th a minute! Wait a minute now. Well, who I think I think it. I think it could. They could have substituted Francisco Flores in Birmingham, 
and send him to be the Mil Moscaris at the last minute if we're, once again, if I had the information whether we're going off the newspaper ad or the results afterwards. And even then, if the results afterwards were a description of the match, which is sometimes done in the Goulas territory, that would be helpful versus just line results, which may have been called in by the local promoter and uh, may or may not have uh, been accurate to begin with. And then we would need eyewitness testimony from somebody that was in Birmingham. We'd also need who was in Memphis that night besides you, my son. I was there. Who took a picture? (laughs) Who took a picture of Mil Moscaris in that ring? Well, we are. That that they they can look back on. Hang on a second. Now, Mark James even agrees. Now, they didn't show the finish because Jerry explained to me he has had such great respect for Neil coming in and doing such a clean stretcher job for Jackie Fargo that he agreed not to show it on Memphis TV. However, the clip did air on Tuesday afternoon. Jack Eaton, when he was doing the wrestling results to, you know, pop, you know, pop the news. Yeah. Trades, he showed a clip from the match and it was Mill Mascaris. You know, I was in the cheap. It was a guy in the Mill Mascaris mask. That they, yes, that, I'll that, agree that, with you that there. That, 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 that you're saying on Friday night, they just said, hey, let's just make it Mill Mascaris. So they went out and they, they bought a Mill Mascaris outfit. <laughs> Well, no, this, this, this may very well have been, have we, Brian, by the way, have we spoken to Austin Idol about this? Where does Austin Idol stand on this? Austin Idol has stated that it was in fact Mil Moscaris. And then he went into detail about how he didn't like Mil Moscaris. And the worst match he ever had in his career was in Japan against Mil Moscaris. Let's now go to a popular segment here on the show. Austin Idol, true or false. And this time we're going to talk about a match you were involved in that a lot of people have questioned throughout the years. A lot of people have wondered what was really going on. Was it really the guy? And uh, let me give a little bit of background for the people at home. You, of course, had within a year worked in Dallas. You had a run in Portland that I don't believe was (laughs) was very good for you. You didn't really enjoy it up there. You worked in Detroit, and eventually you were back in Tampa. You were working out. You're running to Rocky Johnson. And he he recommends you go to Memphis. He says you can make money there despite all the experiences you had with Nicholas. You can make money in Memphis. And that you do. You get there, I believe, the end of 78, December of 78. And within a couple of weeks, you win the Southern title. And you and Jerry Lawler are involved in this feud. And it's a very interesting match that takes place. January 29th, 1979, the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis. It's Austin Idol and Mil Moscaris oh. against Jerry Lawler and Jackie Fargo. Now, this is one of the very few appearances of Mil Moscaris as a heel anywhere. I mean, he's a babyface everywhere he goes. He's a babyface in the magazines, a babyface everywhere he wrestles. <laughs> this is his only, his lone <laughs> appearance in Memphis, and he loses a stretcher match. So this man notorious <laughs> for not selling anything from anyone get stretchered out a lot of people throughout the years have questioned whether it was actually mil moscaris or in typical memphis wrestling style just (laughs) some guy with a mask that they said hey it's mil moscaris and it really wasn't so austin idol true or false did you team up with mil moscaris on january 29th 1979 yeah i I, i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure it was mil i mean the guy never or I would say rarely, I guess, took his mask off. But, uh, I mean, I, I think the, the, the tell, the, 
the tell all would be the body. I mean, if you, you, you know, he had a very distinct body. So if that body was anywhere near there or close enough to it, then that was Mill. And I do believe it was Mill Masters. Yeah, I sure do. But I understand what you're saying. In Memphis, you you would never know. It could be the guy who's uh, working downtown at the uh, the Jiffy Lube, you know. <laughs> they had assassins. They had all sorts of guys. You know, Pat uh, Hutchinson could get a mask and become anyone <laughs> within a minute. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was no limit. I mean, there's absolutely no limit. But yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure that was Mill. Yeah. What makes people suspect about this is a he did the job and did a stretcher job b he was a heel he was never a heel and then c of all the places to show up at for one match memphis tennessee with a very small hispanic population i would gather going to the mid-south coliseum every monday night so a lot of people have always thought this was rather weird deal but he had all that magazine coverage, though, see? So he was a star, even though he wasn't, you know, really exposed there in the area. But, you know, the magazines were so big back then. That's where you saw who was who in the magazines. So uh, I would say that uh, probably Jerry Jarrett really did a schmooze job on Mill to to get him to do that. Yeah. And he probably figured, hey, I'm never going to be back. And uh, they're paying me good. I bet you that I'll, I'll guarantee Austin Idol had a Mill Moscarus fucking. Then now that I know that, I guarantee you Austin Idol had a Mill Moscarus fucking mask from when he was in Japan having a rotten match with Mill Moscarus. No, no the, that match and happened after. Well, I guarantee he still hated the motherfucker. And he said, I got an idea. We can get Fargo. Let's dress up fucking. It couldn't have been Pepe Lopez because that was after the accident. So let's dress up somebody as Mil Moscaris and do they beat that motherfucker and get into a stretcher job with him because fuck him. Now I know exactly what happened. So you're saying that. And so, oh, and so, and so, so this bout between Idol and Mascaris takes place in 1980. Idol is so livid about how the match goes that he time travels back to 1979. I'm, 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 say, I'm saying it it wasn't the first time that fucking oh. Idol had probably met or dealt with Mil Mascaris and probably had carried over into the rotten match they fucking because Yeah, because Idol toured Japan so often. <laughs> oh, but he did spend a lot of time in Houston there, uh, pal. So before well. you fucking... Before you run that dick licker, make sure you know whose balls are in your mouth. Oh, uh, he spent a lot of time in Houston working for Paul Bosch and, and for all over Texas, for that matter, when he was in Texas out of Dallas for Fritz. So I'm sure their paths crossed. And he, but the point is, that makes a whole lot more sense for a one week angle, especially in Bob. Why would why would they bring in Mil Moscaris do a stretcher job for Jaggy Fargo when they were bringing Jaggy Fargo in as a special attraction anyway? Well, here's the thing. And, and, here's the thing. But here's, here's the thing. is too nice a man. Jerry Jarrett's too nice a man, Sunshine. It, well, you consider this point. Now, if the plan all along is to do a hoax, right, that they're going to bring in a ringer. Why not? You would aver- you would have plenty of time then to advertise that. No, because it didn't make it a shit because nobody would have paid to see Mil Moscaris in Memphis, Tennessee in 1979 to begin with. He was an unknown quantity except for nerds like you that, that yes. read the match. And, and they were already going to the matches anyway. I guarantee you. Well, it popped, they the, were it popped, popped the match. It, it, it popped the house. No, no, no. Granted, Fargo You're, had a lot to do no, with that. Fargo, of course, you idiot. Let but, me explain booking 101 to you. I can't believe it. 
worked this closely in the Memphis territory and you still ain't figured this out. They get they get a chance to fucking juice the deal up because Idol and Lawler are working singles matches a lot in that time period. So they're gonna juice the deal up. They get a chance to bring Fargo in. So they false book another match between Lawler and Idol on purpose. So that, at least for the newspaper ad, so that they can do a shocking angle or a violent angle or whatever on television. And then they've already made the deal with Fargo, but they call Fargo on the phone or Lawler says, I'm bringing Fargo or whatever. And goddamn it, wish we still had the tape because then that would be able to tell us exclusively at a picture or a tape would be able to tell us, but none of those seem to exist. Uh, but that's when fucking idol would say, well, I've got my goddamn partner, Mil Mazgras, who I hate. And I barely want to bury in a town that he'll never work ever, ever. And it's a big name, but nobody gives a fuck about Mil Mazgras in Memphis, but it's somebody they're going to beat. And they've shot this angle and Fargo comes back and jumps the house. I'm surprised only five grand, honestly, because usually, uh, Jackie was worth more, but probably because nobody gave a fuck about Mil Mazgras. Well, Here's, but but you've but that's always been like a point. Like if you're bringing in Mil Mascaras, why wouldn't you advertise it? And that's because that's because that's the, funny shit. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big name that could go out on a stretcher because they had heat with somebody in a fucking match, or they figured he'll never know to begin with. <laughs> I'm just trying to smarten you up to the facts, son. What facts? You're you're all you give me is theories. I give you results that put Flores in Alabama, not Memphis, on that night. I talked to Jerry Lord. Jarrett, who was backstage. And, and Pablo Crenshaw, I don't fucking know, but it wasn't, it wasn't Aaron goddamn Rodriguez, Bill Mascaras, because he was off someplace making a big fucking payday or sitting in his spacious uh, home at that point in time. Okay, all right. You know what? I'm, sure. I, I, I'm going to let Brian last. Brian? Brian, please we, help me help we, me here. We have, Cock, we have, we have both. Off the legs. Either that or shove him. We have both presented evidence. I think I've presented facts while... Mr. Cornette has just presented fantasies and really uh, immature uh, juvenile insults. Uh, I, they were they were certainly might have been amateur, but they were certainly not juvenile. <laughs> Brian, uh, what are your thoughts on on this case? As the resident expert in house of juvenile activities. I will state that um, I think it's a very interesting back and forth here. Now, the main <laughs> point that I agree with Mr. Cornette on is. We don't know. We simply don't know. Now, there are different people with different points of view. Of course, the people directly involved are saying one thing, and the people on the periphery who weren't there but know a little bit about the history of things, like Mr. Cornetto saying, well, what is like, has Lawler ever chimed in on this? Has, has the king ever fucking yeah, chipped yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. Said? I, I, as a matter of fact, ironically enough, I was going to Louisville. It was my first car ride with the king going to Louisville, and I thought, man, this is great because I get to ask him all the questions you get, I ever wanted you to. Get to. You get to show, what he, show him what a mark yeah, you are. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I asked, him about, I asked him about this match, and he goes, I don't remember, man. I don't. I don't remember that at all. And I said, "Come on, I explained the whole deal." And he goes, "Huh? I don't remember." And then he fell asleep for three hours. <laughs> I think. Hey, okay, Judge Last, I rest my case. Yes, but Lawler has the worst memory. He, even, I mean, that's why it's like people ask me, like, "Gosh, don't you want to have Lawler on the show?" And I'm like, "I do," but in a, in a way, it's like he'll be the worst guest because he he doesn't. I I guarantee you this is this is an Austin Idol perpetration and Jerry, Jerry Jarrett is 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 either actually doesn't remember it himself or more more likely is trying to be compassionate to you and your childhood memories you are a you are a fool sir 
I, your mother smells like elderberries and your father uh, sells secrets to the Nazis. I wish you uh, nothing but crotch rot, sir. Well, uh, do you accept the challenge to come back next week? Uh, do, do, what, do, what are we going to argue about next week that you won't listen to me about? We're going to have Jerry Jarrett on, and he'll explain it to you. He, he's going to break it down for you so you understand, because you talk like no, you, 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 you talk. But see, but see, the fact is, in 1979, you were not allowed in the dressing room anyway, even if you were in Memphis, which you were not, sir. You were in Louisville. God knows where you were or what you were doing, but you were not there. Jerry Jarrett, we've heard from we've heard from Jerry Jarrett. We've heard from the tag team partner of Mill Massacre that night, Austin Idol. So, all right, yeah. I, I tell you, I will come back. I will be on if we can also book Mill Massacre on the same program. <laughs> oh, I'm well, glad to be on with with we can't, we can't guarantee that, but we have Francisco Flores or a version of Francisco Flores. If we could get the if, who was actually El Toro, also right. his partner, the Turk was a, a short, much squatter man who actually, they worked uh, in the Tennessee Territory. Um, oh, my God. I'm trying to think how far ago uh, uh, or longer he he did, rather, as uh, as one of the uh, Jean-Pierre and Pierre Bonnet boys. Did he not? Yeah, I, bl- I believe uh, but, so. You know what? I, I'm going to send a wire to, to, the, to the family of Salvador Luteroff. <laughs> To, oh, see, to see if they can clear this up. Just give it up and, out and, and maybe yeah. Diamante Negro, El Diamante Negro, the Black <laughs> Diamond, uh, or as he's known, the Big House, Casa Grande. Maybe he can clear some of this up. You need to you need to seriously enter some kind of inpatient therapy where they keep you out of public for a long period of time and 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 prevent you from mixing with people until somehow your sanity is restored to you. Oh, that's rich coming from you. You're the, you're a deranged cult leader who has these followers, your minions who just believe everything you say, sir. I present facts. You present insults. I rest my case. Well, actually, I, I present inter- entertainment, but we I don't want to go over your head with that one. But, but nevertheless, all right. Scott, I've done my best. Brian, I've done my best. Yeah, how does this segment end? I don't There is no end, apparently, with, with Bowden. He's going to cling to this like a trumper. Oh, oh, down oh the, hey, hey. Down no. to the very last bit. No, sir, that, that was uncalled for. <laughs> but, 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 okay, I tell you what, I, I will not admit that it was Mil Moscaris, but I, I do admit that it may have been uh, Dos Caras. <laughs> so, okay, so now that's the theory. It was his, it was his brother. <laughs> and a pronunciation of Dos Caras we have never heard before. <laughs> well, I don't speak to such good Spanish from up here in, in I thought it was Dos Caras. Well, and for years I always said it as Dos, I, I always said it as Mil Mascaras. Carreras, whoever the fuck it, it wasn't Gory Guerrero, though. I, it I, wasn't because the match would have been better. Jerry Jarrett now pronounced uh, Mil Mas- Well, I, I say Mil Mascaras now because that's the way I've heard it pronounced, uh, I think, on some of the Houston tapes. But for years, I used to say Mil Mascaras. Well, besides that, who who in Houston? Who knew? It, it depended if it was Peter Bergholz or Paul Bosch, they might pronounce it one way. It depended on who was doing it or if it was Jim Ross. Who, who alternated, as did Watts, for years between Dugan and Duggins. So we won't go into that. What was the story on that? 
It was almost like a inside. I don't know. It was the way Watts said it, and it was goddamn infectious. Where you almost thought that for a while there, you thought that's the way it was supposed to be, and I don't know. I it had already been established before I got there. Oh, too funny because they're, they're just going back and forth, and and one one the one guy's going. Well, don't going. try to fucking buddy up to me now when oh. I'm, I'm just <laughs> you to begin with. For one thing, you fucking numb nuts. I'm just telling you, you can believe what you want to believe. I, you know, if 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 you if you find happiness in this one childhood memory of seeing an overrated fucking uh, Mexican lucha legend ten years past his prime or whatever, then. Uh, then, then go ahead and and take that approach to it. Aren't but you, I'm aren't you, aren't you the same one who booked this washed up guy ten years later in Houston for Clash of the Champions? No, I did Barnett book. <laughs> I just conned him into doing the spot with Cactus to get Cactus over. Okay. Yeah. Oh, all right. There you have. And you didn't. Well, ask, on that note, you didn't I ask. Him, that... you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't ask him if he was in Memphis then. Did now when when he when he was there that night. Did he deny being in Memphis on January 29, 1979? The subject did not come up. Because when we were trying to keep him from beating Cactus Jack in less than like four minutes, it didn't come up to ask him if he'd done a stretcher job for Fargo and Lawler in the Coliseum uh, 11 years before that. I, I can't imagine why it wouldn't have come up. But all right, if that's your story. Uh, Bowden, I'm sorry. You got, you got, you, you got no legs to stand on. So, and right there coming, coming, is the perfect time. Coming, coming from a man with no legs at this point, because I've cut you underneath with. Facts. Oh, if I, if I were you, if I were you, I'd, I'd work on it and do a fucking uh, wild line later on where you got a better comeback than that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that about wraps this segment up. My guest, uh, Mr. Cornette, always a pleasure, sir. Good. Yeah, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> well, Brian, I think we probably raised more questions than we answered here today on Kentucky Fried Wrestling's uh, inaugural edition of Unsolved Memphis Mysteries, but. Hopefully, uh, we will be ready to come back with this next week with uh, some more new evidence. I uh, just thought of a couple of things that Jim Sparkman made me about that I want to check out and uh, and perhaps confront him with down the road. And hopefully, uh, Jerry Jarrett will come back on really soon to clarify some of the stuff that we do find along the way. Well, we're going to take uh, a quick break, and we'll be right back with Stinkin' Rednecks on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. Where are you going? Going to eat. I see. Pizza, huh? Nope. Burgers? Yeah, getting good Kentucky Fried Chicken. Why Kentucky Fried Chicken? Tell him, Dad. Because the Colonel uses only fresh grade A chicken. Yeah, we're eating out, but we're eating right. But what do the kids say? Well, frankly, I am exhausted after that riveting discussion with the Louisville Lip, Jim Cornette. There's no one else like him. Jim, thank you for being on the show. Hopefully this next segment will be much tamer 
with my next guest from Louisville. Oh my gosh, he, like me, uh, grew up a big fan of Memphis wrestling. Now, when we say Memphis wrestling, that's just what it, that's just the term everybody's using for the wrestling shows that would take place across the territory. Uh, first with uh, Nick Goulas and Roy Welch, and then later on with uh, Jerry Jarrett when he made the split from Goulas. Uh, my guest is uh, also the official artist of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, and he is my partner in the official KFR Pod store that is now online at KentuckyFriedWrestling.BigCartel.com. I'm talking about Terrible Travis Heckle. Welcome to Kentucky Fried Wrestling, Travis. Hey, hey Scott. Hey, just so you know, though, in Louisville, it wasn't called Memphis Wrestling. Do you know what it was called? Uh, no, what was it? Channel three wrestling. <laughs> Channel it was three. on wave three. So for right. It was called, everybody called it channel three wrestling. Okay. Well, you know what? A lot of people <laughs> said channel five wrestling here, but the, the, oh, really? but the big thing, the big term that everybody used in Memphis, like if I were, uh, eight or nine years old, right on the playground. And I was roughhousing with somebody, roughhouse foregoing with somebody, uh, you know, just kind of, yeah. you know, wrestling or maybe even a scuffle, a, fr a friendly wrestling match was getting, turning into a scuffle. My teacher might, might run out and say, Hey, settle down out there. Y'all, this ain't Monday night wrestling. So the, the, that was like, <laughs> that, that was the biggest term. Did, did anybody make a reference to Tuesday night wrestling? Uh, no, it, it was just, it was always channel three wrestling. That's what it was always called. Okay. Um, I guess about that time we all started watching, you know, we were getting cable. So there's, you know, we hit Georgia and all that. So I guess that's one of the, you know, we need to ask Cornette about that. If, if people called that, um, in the seventies and stuff, cause it used to be on WDRB too, the, uh, independent affiliate back mm -hmm. then. Then they switched to Wave, but I'm not for sure the exact day. So we why didn't ask Cornette about that when that if he no, you know, kind of first heard that. I'm not asking Cornette anything else. <laughs> <laughs> that son of a bitch. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I, I I love talking to Jim. I I could listen to him talk all day as long as it's not about this mill massacre situation, this ongoing mystery that we're that we're trying to solve. Now, uh, that was the first card that I attended. That's why it's so, uh, I guess, important to me that that I know the answer. I, I refuse to let go of this. So that was what that was a, a, a big night for me. Do you remember your first time going to the Louisville Gardens? Oh, of course. Uh, I, I think I remember finding wrestling data, and I, I had to look for the first card ever because it was uh, August third, nineteen eighty two. My anniversary of my wedding is actually August fourth, so they kind of tie in together. <laughs> Which one is more? Which one is more important to you? Which? <laughs> well, she doesn't listen to podcasts, so I can uh, say this. No, I'm just joking. No, but uh, it was actually uh, at the height of Kamala's Southern title reign, and uh, JJ Dillon. They brought him in, and he faced Jerry Lawler in the main event. Actually, okay. And um, it was, kind of, and I don't know why that was like the first card. I think I bugged my dad for years, my mom and dad for years. Well, about I guess I started watching September of '81 the two pillow contestants saying brawl, but we can go into that later. But uh, I'd been bugging my go. My aunt and uncle used to go all the time in the '70s and early '80s, and finally he goes, "Oh, let's just take him one night." And so that was the card. I guess we just had free. But uh, I always remember that first card because I was scared to death of Kamala. 
and I literally thought he was going to come up in the crowd and eat me. <laughs> and I'm sure you know most of you, most of you people in Memphis probably thought that too because he was scary yeah. as could be. Yeah, yeah. Can- and I still can- remember him coming, coming, can- coming can- out. Cannibalism a- was certainly implied by J.J. Dillon. <laughs> oh yeah, and I still remember him coming to the ring and being scared out of my ass. Yeah, and literally so. And it's I tell my son that I was like, hey, he likes watching. He'll watch old Memphis stuff like we've talked about. Like he likes watching Austin. I don't tell Joe, but I was like, you don't get the same thing now as you do back then because you thought it was real, and there was nothing like seeing Kamala come out and really thinking as a kid, oh shit, this guy's going to eat me. It doesn't surprise me that that you know that was a card that maybe you felt like you had to see um, because Dylan was so over. I've never seen it done before where a guy, because Lawler had worked in Florida and they had done an angle there where Mm -hmm. Lawler, uh, Dylan asked permission to use one of Lawler's crowns and call himself King James for a while. So they had kind of an angle going on in Florida and Lawler really liked Dylan and what's not to like, right? And I I guess to get this over that, because it's not realistic to say that Jimmy Hart, because he's been on TV every week in Memphis for for a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. It's not realistic to say that he went on Yeah, that he went on safari and found this jungle savage. But with so he got Dylan to cut the promo, and Dylan does a masterful job. And he does just these series of promos. And the plan was not initially, they never thought about bringing him in because he was always working for Eddie Graham on Monday nights. And Jerry Jarrett and Graham had a great relationship. But gosh, he was so over because of the promos. When they finally did bring him in, he did really well. I think his first appearance in Memphis drew about 9,000 fans. And was it packed that night in Louisville? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, until until probably about 85, it was always four or 5,000 fans in Memphis. I mean, I'm sorry, in Louisville. Yeah. So, I mean, the crowd was sold out that night. It was still at least 5,000 people there. Okay. And what was, and so you, you said you became a fan in 81. Was there anything in particular mm-hmm. that, uh, that attracted you to it? Was it Lawler's comeback? Cause that was a kind of a, a, no, no, no. What it was is, uh, my aunt and uncle, they were kind of like the younger cool ones. We always knew they went to wrestling, you know? So I kind of, you, everybody knew the name Tojo in Louisville. Uh, my cousin, them dressed up for Halloween. One of our friends dressed like Tojo Yamamoto. <laughs> so he was, you know, people knew the names, but I never really watched it. But, you know, I knew the names, but I don't I was just turning. I guess I was waiting for cartoons or it was right after cartoons one Saturday morning. I just happened to turn the channel. It was on wave three and it was the second Tupelo concession stand brawl. And I just happened to turn on at that moment. And I was like, I've been missing this all these years. I still remember Tojo slapping the blade in the concession stand. It was it was amazing. Oh yeah. So, oh okay. At, and you're talking so you're talking about the Onita Fuji. Uh, yeah, oh yes. Gilbert yes, yes, and yes. Morton in '81. Okay, yeah. That yeah. That's. I mean, I uh, it's hard to knock. Law- I'm not, and I'm not knocking Lawler and Dundee and Latham and Ferris. That was incredible. But this one. The, you know, they say the sequel is not always as good as the original it's, or it's very rare. But this is I always say this is like the Godfather 2 of wrestling angles because it's it's just remember, though, this is the third one, though. Oh, that's right. Because the Gibsons did it. Right. Yeah. 
Okay. The, the, so I guess the sequel wasn't the bombers. So you right. were right about the sequel. Yeah, I forgot about I'd forgotten about that one. I'd for, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But, and I think because they they did it with the bombers again, I think you know it was like, oh, yeah, come on, you know. But uh, but do I, you know? Yeah. To me, that was the angle that got Gilbert and Morton over because they were two. It was a classic Jarrett formula, right? To have two uh, blonde-haired guys, good-looking. Uh, you know, both had grown up around the business and they were undersized. They were underdogs, but they had a lot of heart, a lot of fire and they would, yeah. and they would also get color. <laughs> and so they would take a, yeah, oh, yeah. the crowd would get into it. Ricky Morton was, you know, that's where he first learned to sell his ass off because when he got, you know, he was kind of a, I, he's always a competitor, competitive job guy initially, and then Sonny yeah. King took him under his wing, and then Sonny took King, him under his wing, yeah, yeah, and then turned on him, and they had a feud. And boy, I think that's where Rick, that's where Ricky Morton first learned to sell because Sonny wore his ass out <laughs> in the in the ring. Yeah, but uh, okay, so that's that's a great first memory of Memphis wrestling. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's crazy, like. That I mean, it was probably probably a top ten moment in Memphis, and that's when you kind of discovered it. But uh, I I just started watching every week, and I guess it was from that time until August of that next year. I'd probably beg to go to wrestling like you used to beg your family to go to. It was just one of those things we got to go see this. And I think you know after that uh, until ninety five ninety what ninety probably ninety six sometime in ninety six, I was going three times a month. Okay. Oh. So from that for 14 years. Oh my gosh! Wow, that's that's a lot more than I got to. I, I got to go. Yeah. You know, it, because go, that's part of the reason people look at the numbers in Memphis, and I, and I, do, I honestly think that if the situation hadn't changed, where so many baby boomers were moving their families to the suburbs, uh, mm-hmm. it was getting harder to draw. The Jarrett's product, I think, was definitely better, more exciting. They were definitely getting the younger, younger de- demographic when they introduced the fabulous ones in the Rock and Roll Express. But it was getting harder and harder to draw because, you know, my my dad grew up about ten minutes away, fifteen minutes away from the Coliseum. Uh, it was a nice uh-huh. neighborhood then, but at that point, it was sort of going on the decline, and people were moving away from there. So what used to be just a, you know, you could practically walk there was now kind of an ordeal. You know, and mm-hmm. people getting off work. Do I really want to go down there and, and deal with the traffic? And getting out of the Coliseum could be <laughs> harrowing. I mean, it was uh, <laughs> it, it could be kind of crazy. So, it, so that all said, I mean, the, the promotion did a great job of uh, of continuing to put up great numbers in spite of all the people moving out of the area. But that's fantastic. So I only, I only got to go for like my birthday. Uh, Christmas, uh, the beginning of summer, midsummer, and then right before school started. <laughs> and maybe if I made the honor roll, wow. or something like that. So I didn't get to go to a lot of shows. So that's fantastic. What What are some of the best uh, matches you saw live in Louisville? Well, I, I know you won't believe me about this one, but you know, June seventh, nineteen eighty three, the best match of the four in Louisville <laughs> with Jerry Lawler and Bill Dunham. Literally town. Wait a minute. To see what happened. They had, <laughs> no, they had three days to practice this match, and Louisville was what the fourth day. And so after the Lexington, Nashville, and Memphis, they had it to perfection, and went off without a hitch. And there was no issues. It was the best match ever. Wait, so this is like this is very similar to the conversation I just had with Jim Cornette. So you you were, you were there at all four shows. 
Oh, that was my birthday. That was my Wait a birthday. minute. I'm talking about, were you there in Lexington? Were you there Saturday oh, night? Oh, no, no. The, oh. No, I wasn't. Okay. But your, your theory is. I think Joe Stoffy was there. I don't know if you know, you know Joe. Uh, he, yes. he runs yeah, the ICW. I, yeah, yeah. I, I think he was actually at that one. Okay. All right. Well, but yeah. and, but Lauren Dundee, look, they, you know, they had that great feud in 77. It wasn't just like this is their first go around. So, all you know what? All four matches were probably great. My contention is, though, <laughs> and again, this is, <laughs> yeah. this is just my bullshit theory that, you know, look, I find it fascinating that as I watched that Saturday morning show that they did, you know, they did, a, it was kind of rare, too. They did two versions of this of this go home show to promote the loser league talent uh-huh. match. uh by the time they did the live show to promote the show the live uh, monday night show at the mid-south coliseum they had already had their first loser league town match in lexington so they had, yeah so they taped a segment at, at jerry jarrett's house where they're sitting at a table with eddie marlin it's basically the same setup that they do in Memphis, mm-hmm. but without dave brown and it's lance russell in the, mm-hmm. in, the in the middle of it uh so that that made it made it kind of unique uh and then you know after saturday morning tv i had no idea being a fan i think i was 12 then or 11 that they were going to drive three hours to nashville and have the have, have another loser <laughs> <leave> town <laughs> match and they go to memphis and do it again and so they were all probably great but i have to think that this is the biggest show of the year in memphis they've had to kind of accelerate this thing because Jarrett made a deal with uh, Ole Anderson to have Dundee go there right. and book and get Georgia wrestling superstars off the ground so he could continue booking the right. smaller spot shows while keeping his bigger name stars uh, in places like Baltimore and West Virginia and all the other places that uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling was expanding to. And, of course, it kind of was a disaster that Jim Cornette knows all about, and I'm not blaming Jim for that. But uh, So that's why this was on the fast track. I think Jared initially had planned for this feud to, to be drawn out uh, like it, much like it did in 77, where it was going to be a really hot summer. But they, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's the way it worked out. But uh, I believe it wasn't quite uh, full at the Coliseum, but anything over 11,000 seats was considered a sellout, and I think there were like 11,003 tickets sold. So... Technically, wow. yeah. So it was a sellout. The show of the year. They left everything on the line. It's it's generally considered one of Lawler and Dundee's best matches, which covers a lot of ground. So you're telling me they got up the next morning, drove six hours to Louisville, <laughs> which is not a fun journey, and had a better match the next night. Of course, is that they what you're, four, is that what you're, to protect them. <laughs> But they're exhausted. All, all the flaws that were in Lexington, they worked it out in Nashville. All the flaws in Nashville, they worked it out. All the flaws in Memphis, they there, worked there out. There were no flaws. By the time they get there the were Louisville, no flaws in that Memphis. It was perfect. Match. There were no flaws in that Memphis. It was perfect. <laughs> oh my gosh! And did they do the same deal with all the people sitting at ringside? With the fabulous, yeah. Oh yeah, they had. Uh, okay. Yeah, and Dutch came in after the match and poured champagne on. Uh, Lawler's head. Yep. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, it's funny. I, yeah, I, saw, yeah, it, it, I saw a Japanese wrestling magazine on, uh, online and it had photos from the Louisville bout and Lawler is wearing the exact same outfit. And so there's that continuity, oh, really? I guess, like if the pictures ever <laughs> ran that he was, you know, and, oh, yeah. he, and he was bleeding, he had the same cut that he did in Memphis. 
and they're pouring the champagne and the whole deal. Uh, I don't remember any clips of champagne in Memphis, uh, but uh, maybe that was because they were just celebrating the record money that they drew. Because I think those four shows drew hundred over one hundred twenty thousand dollars. So that's uh, a wow. That's a heck of a you know, I knew that show was big. Is because that was the first time I could even get a program there. Wow. They used to have those, you know, those fifty cent programs. Yeah. That was the first time I I couldn't get a program. Also, a little uh, there, so I I knew it was big. A little fact for that, and uh, and a program that would be a nice collectible. Now you have an advantage because see you were able to go to the matches. I was playing baseball that summer, and I had a baseball game. Uh-huh. and I man, uh-huh. it killed me that I could not go. And so I was I was racing home after my baseball game, and I missed. Jack Eaton's report of the matches on Channel 5 News. So I called my dad, oh. who's a firefighter, and he was at the fire station. And I called him and said, Dad, do you, do you, you know, do you have the results? And he's like, yeah. And I said, what happened? He goes, you're killing me. Tell me. He goes, the king won. I said, he did. He goes, you want to know how he did it? Oh. I said, yeah. He goes, power driver. And I went, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a really big deal. Of course, my father also called me in 1979 from the fire station, and he says, uh, Jack Eaton just did a special report that uh, Jerry Lawler just won the world title in, in Lexington. And I said, you're kidding me. He beat Bockwinkle? <laughs> oh, that was the CWA one. Yeah, he goes, no, somebody named oh, Billy Graham. And I went, oh, well. Well, that's pretty cool too, I guess. You know, but I yeah, really, it's, it's yeah. not the world. But he got a big title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, see, I didn't get to experience the CWA years. That was in '80s. That was a year before I started watching. But you kind of look back now. You're kind of like, yeah, it's kind of cheap. Well, uh, the '77 was a great year. That's when that's when I first started watching with all the Dundee. I, I see, it feels like I say that every single week. I'm sure people are going, God. Quit talking about the summer of 77, uh, which I remember, well, I remember from Lawler and Dundee and Star Wars. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Well, Darth Vader made an appearance. Yes. Uh, yes. All the pop culture heroes uh, of my life, because I was a big Kiss fan. Uh, the Kisser. Uh, Wayne, Kisser. Yeah. Wayne, Wayne Ferris and the Gene Simmons. Make- Spider-Man. Uh, Spider-Man appeared in Memphis. And there was video. For a couple of shows. You know, there was video at some point that Lawler cut with Spider-Man. And it looked like the Spider-Man from the ele- the Electric Company. Like, you know, the real skinny Spider-Man. Oh, oh, my gosh. He would, like, pop up and see the word bubbles and uh, and that kind of the speech bubbles. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and Lawler was trying to make sense somehow of Spider-Man somehow being in Memphis. And his first night in Memphis, he goes to a draw with Mephisto, which I'm thinking, wow, Mephisto must be a tough son of a, son of a bitch if he could go to a draw with Spider-Man. Spider-Man to a draw. Uh, well, we all saw how Spider Man handled Crusher. Well, it's Crusher. not a good way to push Spider Man either, though. Well, I, I mean, Spider Man, you're a pussy to a draw. I mean, we saw Spider Man handle Crusher Hogan in Amazing Fantasy 15 when he debuted. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, can't even hand him a fisto. I mean, he was good in his day, but come on. Maybe his web shooters were crushed. Right during the thing. <laughs> hey, yeah, you're right. You're, I believe you're about to mention Dr. Frank. I was a huge Universal Monsters fan. So, if, the mummy, Dr. Frank, later on the Wolfman, all the all these characters appeared at Kojak was on was appeared well, what, what oh yeah, Lynn Shelley. Uh, yeah. Now, didn't Dr. Frank was at the bomb scare day? 
Uh, was I'm sorry. Was that what? Was that what Lawler said? Or Memphis Heat? Was that in there? Was that the day of the bomb scare? They introduced Doctor Frank when the audience left. Oh, I I don't know. I don't know. What you know? What the, the, the <sighs> funny thing about that show, if I'm not mistaken, that is the same show in 1976 that Adam West appeared on. Adam West. Yes, yeah. it's Batman. So I think he mentions it. So yeah. in, in the same, I think he mentions it during the interview. In the same show, <laughs> you've got Batman <laughs> and Doctor Frank. <laughs> oh my gosh! And then there's a bomb scare, which we all remember in the Batman movie. <laughs> remember Batman running around with a bomb, trying to figure out where to drop. That all makes sense. <laughs> yes, yeah. it all ties together because oh, when they're doing that interview, in. yeah, they're doing that interview. Um, with Dave Brown and uh, Super King comes out while they're in the Superman outfit. And uh, he he always cracks Lawler up. Lawler rarely cracks up on the air. <laughs> and Adam West uh, Adam, Adam West says something about... Uh, said something... Uh, there was a reference to Dr. Frank being in the box. And Adam West cracks. He goes, yes. Yeah, yeah. He goes, I heard about your box. <laughs> and you see Lawler... <laughs> <laughs> kind of nodded his head down and, and covered his mouth. He's he's about to lose it. Oh, and I don't know how Dave Brown. We, you know, yeah. I, I had Dave on the show well, recently. Well, I'm not trying to say Raymond for that backstage. Oh, uh, don't dude. say Buck. Yeah, too funny. Oh, uh, but uh, uh, Travis, you, know, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Saturday morning cartoons earlier, um, and again, I kind of bring this up every week. I initially didn't like wrestling because I would watch cartoons, and my dad would switch it over to wrestling. Uh, were you watching Hanna Barbera cartoons by any chance? Because clearly you have an affinity oh. for that style of artwork as the official artist for the. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. For the Arcadia Black Day Olympics, Scooby Doo. Yeah, yeah, of course. How's that tie into anything? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you know, at our at our wonderful store that uh, we'll get, we're going to shamelessly plug here, uh, Kentucky Fried Wrestling dot. BigCartel.com, we have uh, some very cool merchandise with all the Memphis legends and a pretender like myself also. We're all Hanna-Barbarized, I guess. Uh, we're actually, I'm actually calling it the Hanna-Barbarian line, uh, which I think is rather appropriate. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Because I remember I asked you, I said, did you misspell that? Or just make sure. Yeah, no, I didn't misspell that. <laughs> I kind of like, like the play on it, though. Yeah, we need to get that trademark, by the way. Uh, but anyway, so it's really cool, and everyone loves it. And you kept you can you capture the spirit of of the Memphis wrestling characters, and you also combine it with something that was also very special to a lot of us. And those are those wonderful Hanna Barbera cartoons. And I just think it's like the perfect classic Saturday morning uh, memory uh, memorabilia. You know, it's your one-stop shop to get yeah, everything. Yeah, it kind of, it kind of blends things in. Yeah, it's like worlds colliding in the most wonderful way possible. Yeah, yeah so yeah, of uh, course. Everyone, uh, please go out there and uh, check out our website. Support uh, the Kentucky Fried Wrestling podcast and pick up some really cool merchandise. Totally original that you will not find anywhere else, and and, and that's a testament to Travis's uh, design capabilities and his his, his artistry uh, is just out of this world. He's the guy who does all the artwork for all the different shows that lull you in, and I think he's outdone himself this week with uh, the Jake Roberts and Jerry Gray one. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> six so far. I wasn't for sure if you've seen it yet. Yeah, that is cool. That is cool. I wasn't a big yeah. fan. I, w- I wasn't a big fan of the one you did for me at Austin Idol initially. 
Because <laughs> I was that the one with Jerry Oliver's. Yeah, he was stuck in the toilet. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh boy, I'm gonna catch. Some oh, knee. that's when he had that, that he got kicked in the kidney. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, uh, that's right. Well, I, you know, I was, I, you know, actually, I think it was just a bleeding ulcer. But the story was that okay. Idol hurt him. I just, you know, I think for years we just assumed that it was really true that Idol accidentally kicked him, you know, too hard. But no, I think he actually had a bleeding ulcer and and they just made the story up since that's who Lawler was feuding with. That that actually set up the stretcher match because that that's what put Lawler in the hospital. Oh, was that- yeah. So, see, it all ties together. Oh, everybody- <laughs> Everything ties in. <laughs> it does. It does. Well, hey, Travis, listen, man, I could talk wrestling with you all day. Whenever I get a guest on, we, oh, all, we, we always run over. But uh, this is going to be an ongoing segment where we talk to you know people who just grew up fans of the territory and what their memories are of it. And uh, I appreciate you uh, coming on today and sharing some memories. And be looking for more of Travis's wonderful artwork. Uh, and how did you, you know, this this happened organically, too. We didn't like sit down and say, hey, let's start selling merchandise no. that's Based uh, on Hanna Barbera no. characters, how did what what gave you the idea to start doing that? Where you would take uh, a Memphis wrestler and and just perfectly complement that Hanna Barbera style? Well, see, I did some of the you know the six hundred five the top ten on there. I was doing some of those, and everybody loved them because I thought, yeah, you want to do it kind of fun because you know you know those characters on the top ten. You know, I had Mike Lano and uh, Denim Fritz. Yeah. So you wanted to kind of make them kind of a fun, you know, kind of fun tying into the top ten, how yeah. silly they were. And I kind of thought, oh, I'll kind of tie it in with that. And so I think the first Memphis one I did was Austin Idol because when he started his podcast, I thought, oh, it'd be fun to do an Austin Idol one because was that the Superman? he's one of my favorites. That, ever. It was sort of like a Hanna Barbera Superman. Was that it or? Or was that no? Uh, it was just um, he. I did a Superman one of them too, like a more of a comic style. Okay, but that one was just kind of a fun thing to do. And then um, I just I got a lot of response for it, and my kids love drawing with me. They they both can draw, and my daughter can really kind of if she puts her mind to it, she can draw pretty good too. And so we would always sit down, and my son loves. You know, he's 15, but he loves Memphis wrestling. He loves Tojo and Austin Idol. So I think the first one I did, I actually did it for him, was a Tojo one. And then I just kind of started drawing them all. And over the past year, I just kind of, people have been responding. So then you start your podcast and it's kind of like a, well, let's tie these together. I mean, because people love the podcast. People love the drawings. Yeah. Let's kind of put it together and make it fun and, you know, and I, give them some enjoyment and they can listen to the podcast and get some fun out of it. You know, Travis, uh, and I remember I to, get, to let you know how long we've been, let, we've let this idea kind of simmer. Uh, you used to read my column when it was on Movie Poop Shoot. Oh, yeah. Kevin Smith's yeah. Uh, website that was devoted to pop culture. He got some money from Miramax to do some promotional stuff. And so he created a pop culture website that had a little bit of everything. And I was like the the, the wrestling uh, expert and because I worked with mm-hmm. a couple of guys who helped run the site. And you, were, you would email me every once in a while going, man – you should really do some t-shirts. And I was like, eh, I don't know. Oh, just kind of, you know, just kind of blow, was, blow it off. Like it? Uh, it was long. Yeah. I think it was like 12 years ago. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it was a long time. Oh, so here we are. It's it's finally come to fruition. So all of you people who have for over a decade now have wanted to wear my face on your chest, <laughs> along with all the other legends of Memphis wrestling. Now is your opportunity. Uh, let me can can I just add something? Yeah, go ahead. Now in the, the Hannibal Barbera, I said, Scott, do you want me to put you in there or leave you off? You were kind of at first going, oh, I don't blog in there. Then you were kind of like. Oh, I don't know. I love these guys. You can put me in there, kind of slyly. I mean, I, I mean, you can put me in there if you want. So, well, you know, if it wasn't for Scott, yeah, you know, we wouldn't have all this. So, it is, well, he's the one who kind of helps bring Memphis. Huh? It is my show. Do what? It is my show. Exactly. If we didn't have your show, I mean. Where were we going to go to Memphis Six? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I want you, I want you, got everyone to know that I really debated about this because I, I am no way implying that I was a huge draw in Memphis, <laughs> and I have no notion of being on the same level as Jimmy Hart or Jim Cornette uh, or Lawler or any anybody who actually sold uh, a hell of a lot of tickets and put asses in the seats. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, by the time I got involved in it in the mid nineties, uh, the the attendance was you know hurting. But we still, you know, we put on some great shows, and you saw it was fun. Yeah, you saw. Did you ever see me live in Louisville? Yeah, don't you remember what I told you the story? Uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, I was. We will go ahead. You tell it. You want me to tell it? Yeah, tell it. And that Dave, that Dave Brown won't get mad at me, will he? Uh oh. <laughs> don't, don't you remember what you said to us? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Do you remember what you said to us? Well, all right, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> when Scott Scott didn't come to Love Water Week, he it was very you know he would just come I guess I was what, a, during the summer I early. Was a, I was a special attraction, sort of like Andre the Giant. Yeah, you didn't come or, a whole lot or the World Champion. No, I was yeah. I was in I, school, I, I was in school trying to finish school. Uh, I was in my senior year of school, and if it had been my senior year, I probably would have dropped out to be honest with you because that was tempting. You know, <laughs> well, you know, it's like those it's like those old goals. Uh, Advertisements they used to have special referee George Gillis and he had the big picture. You're right. Yeah, it was kind of like yeah. Remember that? Those ads. Thanks, I appreciate that. Like George, special appearance Scott Bowden. That's actually an Let's insult. Get this attendance up for one thousand to one thousand twenty guys. That's actually an insult to George Gillis. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, I know, right? It has. I think, but, I think it was like his but, senior yearbook photo, and it was it's like see, a special, yeah, special, special, special referee George Goulas. Like that's gonna. You've got you've got Tojo Fargo Luthez on the card, and you're running George Goulas's picture. Uh, I can't imagine why there was a backlash from the fans over that. No, uh, no, never. Okay, but it, no, but so okay. So Scott didn't come a whole lot. And so we were, I mean, we, I guess we were on our other 20s then. So we had just kind of started in the newsletters. And a bunch of us used to go every week, a bunch of our friends. And we were, you know, it was kind of like that smart period. Like, oh, we've been reading newsletters now. We're kind of smart. We got to cheer for the bad guys. And we can do this one later. This will be another episode of the fans at Little Gardens. We'll do that on another episode. Well, no, we're, into crazy it. we're into it now. You got to tell it now. <laughs> no, well, even in the 90s, I'm telling you, these fans took it serious. It was still 1982 yeah. with them yeah. and Louisville Cardinals. No, Louisville, and they, so, yeah, of course, the Louisville fan, I couldn't wait. I, I couldn't go there much, but I loved it. 
because the atmosphere in Memphis oh, a lot it, of times was dead, except for the maybe the main event or the last like the or the the co-main. But uh, man, it, it you know, but you have a thousand people in and or two thousand maybe if we were lucky, and an eleven thousand five hundred seat coliseum, and it's, it kind of takes the heat out of the building. But in Louisville, yeah, it was yeah. a smaller building. It, I think capacity was what five thousand. So, so yeah. and we were still doing a like maybe a halfway feeling it or yeah, we would yeah, you would get a couple thousand yeah. on good, in between fifteen hundred two thousand I mean it's still good for it, yeah it was a hot you know, crowd there I mean, it was a hot crowd and our, yeah. and they it was the diehards and I would I would talk about Germantown which is a big deal in Memphis because it's kind of a snobby rich affluent neighborhood which I was not from uh, I was actually from Bartlett. <laughs> But I knew that that would get heat. I knew that that would get heat in Memphis. But I get to Louisville, and there's all these signs: Germantown sucks. We hate Germantown. <laughs> Which I just, well, here's where Scott. Well, when Scott came out one time, we're doing that. You know how they do that stupid bow? Like you stand up, you kind of bow on the people. And uh, Scott comes over, comes over, and we would always sit in the back side. It was the east side. We sit in the second row. And uh, it was always called the bad guy side. It, everybody was scared to sit over there back in the 80s because there was always fights on that side. But back then, until in the 90s, it wasn't that bad. But Scott comes out, and he's managing Tommy and Doug, and he kind of walks over to us. And we're bowing to him. He goes, you mean to tell me I drove 300 miles to have you retards cheering me? <laughs> oh, <my laughs> and, of course, we loved it more because – Right. That, 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 I, that, mean, I, that I acknowledge. acknowledge yeah, I acknowledge you. <laughs> yeah, we we knew he liked it, so that's why he said it. So, uh, and so that's why we were asking, "Oh, did Dave Brown want to hear this?" But Scott has a ha- nasty habit, probably saying that word. So don't let him fool you. He likes saying it. <laughs> it wasn't just a word. Yeah, I claimed that Randy Els fed me that line, but actually that was a go-to insult for me. Oh my gosh, I was such a rude young man. Ugh. Rude little punk. Yeah, yeah, but you guys love me though, huh? <laughs> of course. I mean, we were at that twenty-year-old. We we're all twenty, twenty-one. That stupid smart age that we thought we knew because we read, you know, some newsletters. And Scott Bell, I mean, he's got some good talent. Oh, we gotta like Scott. You know, that's... <laughs> well, if he's so good, how come he never brings his sorry ass to Louisville? <laughs> yeah, no. Shit. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Man, I had some. I would. It's I, I, you came, we had fun. Yeah, and I, I, actually, that's where I I always brag about this. That's that's the only time I ever pinned Miss Texas at a wrestling match, and I, I may have had my feet on the ropes, but hey, you know, I did accomplish a lot in the business, but I do own a pinfall over a WWE Hall of Famer, and not a lot of people can say Hall of Famer. <laughs> not a lot of people can say that. You'd be surprised in Miss Texas. That that lady was over so much. Oh, I know. I know. And Louisville. And I, I tell you, I loved working. Oh. With Jack, I loved working with Jackie. Man. I think I think she was a great lady. And I, you know, I I actually, and I've told her this. Uh, I reached out to her. You know, when she got the Hall of Fame stuff, and you know, you can joke about the Hall of Fame and all, you know, all that kind of and all that stuff. But it, it, it's cool that they thought to include her and put her in the Hall of Fame. Because I saw her get bullied. She's a hard worker. Yeah, I saw her get bullied, man, in Memphis so badly. And I'm not going to name any names. But it, it it was just awful. They treated her like a piece of shit. And I just, I admired her for sticking with it, working her ass off, doing what she had to do to survive in this business 
to get her shot in WWE and she made the most of it and had a technically a Hall of Fame career, I guess. But you know what? I think she earned it. She uh, she worked. Oh, yeah. You know, she, she made a lot of money there in WWE, went over to WCW, was a big part there. I believe it did some stuff appropriately enough in TNA because her chest was starting to get to be the size of Texas by the time <laughs> she was done with her run. But, but, uh, but I, I really, she was always so nice to me and I was very polite back. And we had a lot of fun working together. I mean, she would get together and she's like, what do you, what do you want to do? And, uh, I'll do, you know, I'll do anything you want. And I was like, well, I was going to try, try, try to put some money down your, your, uh, your bra. And I said, is that okay? She's like, yeah, yeah, do it, you know, whatever, whatever you want. But, uh, she was, she was cool. She was fun to work with. And, and I'd still love whenever I, I'll occasionally I'll run one of the clips on, uh, on Facebook or Twitter and she'll always chime in. She's like, she's like, I'm going to come back and whip your ass if you keep showing that stuff. <laughs> uh, Honestly though, in the nineties, she was probably the most over person in yeah. Louisville. Cause you know, I mean, I love PG 13. They're awesome, but they still had ah, those people punks. that hated them, you know, those punks from the, yeah, punk, but from the wrong, oh, man. From the wrong During, side of the track. Nobody in the crowd <laughs> in Louisville, nobody in Louisville hated her. Everybody loved her. Yeah, boy, they didn't. Like I mean, that's a testament to her. So good for her. They didn't like it when I pinned her. That's for sure. <laughs> oh my god! I'm surprised you got out of there. I know, I know. Well, hey, Travis, <laughs> hey man, this has been fun. Uh, we're, we've gone about 30 minutes over, but uh, at any rate, we'll have you uh, back on uh, some other time to talk some wrestling history. In the meantime, everyone, go check out his stuff, our stuff, our wonderful merchandise, our stuff. Yeah, yes. Show the world how smart you are. By purchasing, <laughs> purchasing the coolest wrestling merchandise you'll find anywhere over at KentuckyRideWrestling.BigCartel.com. Thanks, Travis. Thanks, Scott. And I want to thank all of our guests uh, for appearing on Kentucky Fried Wrestling today. It was certainly a star-studded affair. And then we also had uh, one of the fans, Travis Heckel, who is certainly a superstar in our eyes here at the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network with all his great artwork that that we use not only on T-shirts, but also to introduce – uh, countless podcast episodes that you that you hear here each and every week. Uh, so thank you, Travis, for all your hard work on that. And uh, he's also my partner in crime at the new Kentucky Fried Wrestling Store, which I think we've probably run into the ground at this point. Uh, but it is at Kentucky Fried Wrestling. That's R-A-S-S-L-I-N dot bigcartel.com. That's right. Everyone, check that out. Support the show. And of course, great job, like you said, by Travis Heckle on everything he's been working on. To follow Scott on Twitter, you can go to at Trav Scott Bowden. To follow me on Twitter, you can go to at Great Brian Last. And to follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter, you can go to at Super Podcast. Scott, tell everyone where you are on Facebook. Uh, I'm at Kentucky Fried Wrestling. Again, with no W, that's R-A-S-S-L-I-N. And I often post content throughout the week. Uh, We have uh, some upcoming fan watches that we're going to do. We're watching Studio Channel 5 Wrestling. And I'm commenting throughout the show, and the fans are more than welcome to join in. It's a lot of fun stuff, so check us out. Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden. We'll see you next week. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of Championship Wrestling.